Welcome to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot, your host Samaj McDowell, and unfortunately, I'm here with the Baba Yaga himself, Brian. Um, <laughs> somebody let him in, literally. I did not let this man in the building. I, I've been gone He's like for a vampire. He needs an invitation. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, him. though. You should at least, like... I was on the phone with him, and he was like, let me in. Oh, wait, never mind. I'm in the building. And I'm like, what do you mean you're in the building? Someone like, invited him in. That's I'm going to have to talk to security. I mean, your neighbors are really nice. I, I don't like that. I, I generally don't. They're too damn nice. I'm going to take a picture of Brian and, like, put him in the lobby. And, like, do not let this man... Give it to the FBI. On the, pro- yeah. on the premises. Not even the block. Okay. He does not. He does not belong here. But anyway, he's here. Well, so, he's here. Um, well, you wing right. You just said no, no. Like important. <laughs> <laughs> we got a couple important people, important guests here. Aubrey's back. Hey, yes, Aubrey. Yes. Hey, what's going on? That's a good <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey's like a fired journalist. Like he just. <laughs> he is. He's got the ties. He just did some kind of like. As a tequila You know, I probably should not did this shit. But, you, know. <laughs> you guys won't believe what I've uh, but uh, we have two new guests um, on the on the uh, episode today. But I would say they're more so man, like very good friends. Um, I'm allowed them to introduce themselves uh, as per tradition here, the geopolitical pivot. Um, so, any, mini, miny, mo, rock, paper, scissor it, however you want to do it. Ben wants. All right, yeah, I'll go first. Um, I'm Ben Brod. I'm a Undergraduate student, actually, at American University in my third year. I uh, study national security and foreign policy, um, specializing in, like, gray zone operations um, in the Middle East. Oh. And oh, I... Yeah. yeah. So I, so I said it came to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Finally. That's his huckleberry. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's my introduction, Lola. Yeah, and then my name is Lola, and I am a graduating senior at American University, but I'm simultaneously halfway through my graduate studies also at American University. Um, I also study gray zone conflicts, but on a different side of the world, not the Middle East. I focus on Latin America and Central America in particular. Uh, I focus a lot on non-state actors, cartels, gangs, insurgent conflicts, and how um, states can work uh, with these non-state actors as well as with other states to prevent insurgencies from getting either too out of hand or uh, from ruining the lives of too many civilians and causing mass casualties and mass migrations. Hey, bro, you're fired. What? (laughs) What? I want want these two. These two just took a job. Like, I think, what? The door. Um, so, no, I was like, you know, I, I just get back after like a two week vacation. Now you guys just want me gone. That makes me feel so much better. Yeah, man, when you try on the line. But nonetheless, uh, well, and, and I gotta say, both Lola and Ben, they do good work over at AU Sycamore Institute. Yes, talk. What, what is the the Sycamore Institute? What, what is? Because that's why I found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least that's what we told you. We told you we <laughs> <laughs> We actually do. Um, yeah, so Sycamore is basically, uh, it's a think tank um, that is run at AU. Uh, we've got a couple different divisions uh, working there. So Lola and I are both in the defense and security, um, looking at like defense policy mostly. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Sycamore in general was started in, I think, January of 2021. Uh, it's a 
undergraduate think tank that has branches at Princeton, NYU, I think used to be Columbia. I think that one got shut down recently. <laughs> but oh well. Were they talking um, too wild and crazy up there? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Or the people that ran it graduated. Either yeah, yeah, yeah. something happened. Um, but regardless of the fact, uh, there's divisions for technology and innovation, global economy, uh, grand strategy. Uh, I think that's about it on the divisions. Um, but yeah, we write op-eds. Uh, ben and I started this podcast, so hence why we're here representing and collaborating on the podcast. But we create weekly episodes uh, for the podcast. Uh, ours is called The Root of the Issue. Uh, we have produced episodes on Olympic and diplomatic boycotts. Uh, the introduction to the Ukraine situation, we'll probably do a follow-up on the Ukraine situation, provide developments on that. We recently did an episode on economic sanctions and all the different types that there are. Uh, we've done an episode on armor, particularly tanks and their hard and soft counters in different types of conflict environments. We've talked about insurgencies, what they are, how they're taught at the undergraduate and graduate levels of education. Um, and our upcoming episode will, oh, we've talked about Taiwan um, and the upcoming conflict, maybe, between the U.S. and China about Taiwan. Um, and our upcoming episode, which I think I'm choosing, will probably be about cartels and gang violence in Latin America. Damn. <laughs> and they do, like I said, they do good work over there, so if you guys get a chance, pop on over to their website, Sycamore Institute, and... Take a listen and see what they have to offer. But we're going to be covering a lot of, or at least two or three different things right now. First, we're going to be talking about the Russian maneuvers in Ukraine. We've had a couple weeks off from that uh, due to work and other reasons. And then we're going to be transitioning into uh, what's occurring right now in Mexico in regards to journalist killings and just the general instability of the region. And then we're going to finish off the podcast if we have time. Uh, by talking about China's military reforms starting in 2012 and in the present day and how they've uh, helped or hindered China's ability to project hard and soft power throughout East Asia. So it should be a full podcast and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into it, right Samash? I'm, I'm ready though. Yeah, I, I, you, you, were starting, you were starting to fade off. You guys see him? Like he was starting to fade off. I was world. thinking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> once, I get, once I get it going in my mind, I just zone everybody out. So I'm here, but... Not here at the same time. So, um, well, let's let's start off with what Russia's been doing in Ukraine. Like, how how the maneuvers been going? Have they been going good for Ukraine? Good for Russia? Good for both? Bad for both? Depends on what you ask. I'm asking you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, Russia had announced that they agreed to potentially scale back on their um, operations and tactics um, towards Kiev, but you know, can't always really take. Russian um, Kremlin statements um, to heart as we also you know as information came out that essentially what they're doing is recycling out personnel um, and kind of restructuring their positions outside of Kyiv um, primarily through their newly established um, command and control kind of um, I guess routes um, now past Chernobyl into Belarus uh, that seems like that's what they're doing, at least in the north. As of today, it seems as though they, they as in Russia, is, are starting to uh, embark upon a, a very broad operation in southern Ukraine, primarily in the Donbass region. The reason why uh, is because the Kremlin um, 
first said by Shoigu um, on who's it Russian state TV um, that essentially Russia's strategic goals were changing. Instead of looking towards Kiev in particular, they're looking for the liberation of the Donbass, which makes sense because Zelensky came out and said that he was open to talking about the question of the Donbass region, um, how that will take into consideration regarding what a quote-unquote peace could look like, that, what the end of this war could look like. Um, but all in all, Russia has continued with their missile assaults. Um, they have... Uh, continued with their repositioning today. Putin has assigned essentially a decree that um, drafted about 135,000 conscripts um, to the Russian military. Um, in addition to that, talks are still going on in Turkey. Um, however, the Ukrainian counteroffensive around Kyiv has been um, successful, especially in much more suburban outskirts areas to push back the Russians into a much more defensive position. Um, I know that the um, when Biden was at the NATO uh, conference, a lot of nations such as United Kingdom, Sweden, Germany, um, they've all agreed to provide Ukraine with more military assistance, whether that's in loans, whether, whether that's javelins, um, even um, former Soviet anti-air missiles. Um, Germany's providing 1,500 of those um, to the Ukrainians. Um, so we're seeing overall good sense of morale on the Ukrainian military side, um, even down to their their political leadership that's in essentially nuclear bunkers in Kiev. Um, however, what we're seeing is not necessarily a retreat by Russia, but it's much more of a recalculation. Um, it's not to say that they won't try continual targeting of Kiev uh, to bog down any type of Ukrainian counteroffensive that's been largely successful in that area. Um, However, their main goal is now southern Ukraine and southeastern Ukraine. So whether that's continuing to seize or destroy Mariupol, whether that's definitely putting some of those 135,000 conscripts into the Donbass area to kind of essentially make Russia's security claim much more physical um, and force Zelensky to essentially give up that region. Well, I think the one thing, well, definitely when it comes to the northern uh, front for Russia, like the problem for them has been like that's probably been the most slowest front for them to advance in because of the mud as well as how troops have been reacting to towards the conflict etc et from what most reports at least that i'm seeing i think right now they're trying to reconsolidate themselves in belarus and either one or two things could happen a what you just said which is they'll reorient those forces towards eastern maybe even southern ukraine or they may try another push north and just make it show as a feint. Though, still, that is unheard of right now. Especially now, because there's other reports that um, in Chernobyl, where we were hearing a lot about soldiers getting radiation poisoning and having yeah. being forced into uh, specific hospitals in Belarus. So I, I would say it sounds like they, most likely what you just said, they probably will try to push more eastward, especially because Shoigu's, because of Shoigu's declaration to that the main operation now is to secure Luhansk and Donetsk and um, especially because I don't think their original plan of regime change or whatever is viable anymore we have seen already just Ukraine has put up a fierce re fiercer resistance than what we expected mm -hmm. it's been a month more than a month since this war started 
Well, I mean, that goes into the notion of how back in February, or well, mid mid to late January, and then into February, where Putin got rid of basically the officials in his inner circles that basically told him, do not invade Ukraine. Um, now he's left with a bunch of yes-men, and he's fell into the dictator's trap. Um, that has literally put him, not just in jeopardy, um, within this war in Ukraine, but also puts his internal stability in Russia um, at stake. The one thing that brought him to prominence was the fact of the internal turmoil within Russia. Uh, he came onto the platform, nobody knew who he was, but he came onto the platform decreeing essentially, quote-unquote, the dictatorship of the law. Um, there's this notion of that the law shall reign supreme. Um, will bring law and order into Russia. Um, you stay out of politics, leave the politics to me, and I'll give you security, I'll give you food, I'll give you etc. Um, largely up until about 2008, he did that. Um, but now we're seeing kind of a, a lot of different aspects um, that are being played, and we talked about how geography was going to play a point into this. Um, how essentially the same problems that Hitler and Napoleon um, encountered invading Russia, Russia is now encountering in Ukraine, which I find is very ironic and hilarious. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I would say it's a bit of a stretch, though. I mean, the whole thing with Napoleon and Hitler is they were trying to bite off the whole European Right, economy. more than they can chew. Oh, more than the they whole, can chew. And, but I'm saying, I mean, these goals are more limited. I mean, Putin hasn't, he hasn't tried to expand war into other countries. He's focusing on one country. You know, three or four different axes. Like he's he's not he's not trying to expand this conflict. He's trying to focus on what he can snatch away. And I'm and I'm just saying from a military perspective, just looking at this on the ground, he's had significant gains. Oh, he's he's con he's connected to the axes, Kharkiv and Kiev. He's got a united front there. There's no defense battalions kind of interdicting the movement of supplies between those two axes. He's he's pushed upwards um, from Ukraine. He's got. You know, a lot, of, a lot of territory under his belt that he has to police now is going to be a problem. But I'm just saying, militarily, he's, he's not in dire straits, I don't think. No. Not, not nearly as bad as, say, Napoleon at the end. No. The, the, the end. other thing you need to pay attention to is, to be honest, I don't think this war that we've been in so far has actually led to any significant, like, actions or even just battles in general. There hasn't been this Stalingrad moment battle. Yet, or no decisive push that has said, okay, this one side's going to win over the other. We are. It's mostly just been small scale fighting, partially because yes, the Ukrainians are using asymmetrical warfare against the Russians, which worked and fantastically. But and the other thing too is alpha that is like if you push a lot of people into a small area, that that's where high technology can really work wonders, right? Like these smart munitions. That's what it's built for, just to annihilate massive. Mm -hmm. Mass units. So that's one, that's another reason they're not. No one's trying to fight a large scale battle like fucking Kursk or anything like that. But also but, but, the simple fact that Putin knows that he he will fully lose control of the situation if the war does enlarge. If for example, for example, when he targeted that uh, military base in Western Ukraine, um, where it was housing a lot of foreign um, fighters, essentially the, those that went over to volunteer to fight for Ukraine. Um, that was essentially, it was a, a, at least a strategic view, an operation to deter 
not just any other individual to come into the fight, but also as a way to deter, let's say, nations like Poland, who really wants to help Ukraine, um, or any other type of Western nation that may feel the need to increase assistance to Ukraine. The moment that this situation expands out of it being just a war between Russia, Ukraine, and then the Chihuahua Belarus, um, <laughs> Because even Lukashenko tried to say, oh, if Poland gets in, this is World War Three. Like, sir, <laughs> sir, with all due respect, like, if we, um, if we look at this situation as, as plainly as it is right now, looking at the gains that Russia was able to garner, primarily in those hinter areas of Ukraine along the Russian border, um, we've said this on our first podcast when the actual war started, that Russia will make good gains on the outer areas of eastern Ukraine. But the more that they push in, the more resistance they will have. In addition to the more geography could potentially push back in this situation. We're looking at mud, we're looking at murkiness, we're looking at marshes, we're looking at flooding of rivers, we're looking at valleys, etc., etc., filling the blanks. Um, but at the same time, what this is showing um, is that this is the first look at com conventional warfare in the postmodern world since World War II. Mm -hmm. That this is showing us how, even in a peer competitor type situation, I mean, Ukraine and Russia, they've been fighting since like the year 888. <laughs> um, it's true. I mean, going back to the Grand Prince of Kiev, this is what this is. They've been fighting for God knows how long, just on the on the, the notions of who they are as a people. Um, but enough about me, my black ring, because when Wright says I can talk all day, and I will. <laughs> no, we can't. And I, I gotta bring in Ben and, and Lawrence. What, what do you guys think about uh, both Russia's military gains and any other repercussions coming out of the Ukraine war that we haven't talked about yet? Do you guys have any insight into this? Uh, well, I think there are some major. I think there are two major sides of repercussions that we do need to talk about. One, I think Ben is very well equipped to talk about, which is. <laughs> Sorry for taking yeah. off on that one, but the the military repercussions, particularly that uh, Russians' armaments are facing in this war, and we've shown how weak a lot of their arms have been in this conflict, and how weak some of their military equipment has actually been shown to be, and how there are weaknesses that can be exploited in a conventional war like this. Um, but I, I don't know a whole bunch about that. I don't know if you do. If you want to go down that path, you can. But what I wanted to talk about was, sorry for putting you in that yeah, situation if you don't want I can me. pretend to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as long as it sounds factual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. But what I wanted to talk about was um, the role that the international community and that even sanctions can play in this situation where... As we know, the U.S. and a lot of Western European allies have all kind of jumped on the jump ship or jumped on the side of Ukraine and the weaker party in this conflict and been like, oh, wow, no, Russia's the big bad wolf in this situation and just really raining hell down on poor Ukraine. We have to be on the side of Ukraine and save Ukraine as much as we can, provide support and sanction big bad Russia. Oh no, what can we do? Everyone in the world must be on our side, right? No, that's not the case. People in the international community, particularly 
particularly international states, they always act in their own self-interest. And a lot of states, particularly big ones in South Asia, like India. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> they're, it's not in their best interest to side with Ukraine in this situation. Russia's a really big trading partner with India, and Russia's been providing armaments and uh, income streams for India for decades, mm -hmm. even longer than decades, and India really doesn't see a benefit from signing with Ukraine right now. They might lose some allies in Western Europe and the U.S. for doing that, but it's not in their own self-interest, at least for right now or the upcoming decade. Uh, they might see some really big harms in doing that in the next upcoming years, especially with the detriments that we've seen Russian arms take in this conflict. We, India might not want to keep buying tanks and airplanes from Russia anymore, but they don't want to lose this income stream. So, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, and we, we talked about that, I think, a couple podcasts ago about how the Department of State and the White House have kind of react rather imprudently to India's declaration, oh, we're not going to sanction uh, Russia with the rest of y'all. Um, but I think that was well spotted. Well, I think that was very well spotted. Ben, do you have anything to add? Or yeah, um, I'm not about that, but I... I <laughs> no, it's cool. No, no, I, I agree. I think, um, I think that this is going to be this little um, special military operation is going to be a little bit uh, <laughs> more devastating for Russia then, um, then y'all might, in my opinion, my prediction is that it'll be a lot worse. Um, I think the Russian initial, uh, you know, reason for going in was to set up a, a new regime, a friendly regime uh, in Ukraine. I think it was like, you know, the Donbass was secondary, but I think they wanted a new regime. They were going like, go big or go home. And they went big, and they... They're going home. They're going home, yeah. <laughs> like, I think um, the West has been really good, uh, for the most part, in uniting the entire world against um, Russia and behind Ukraine. Ukraine, obviously, too, their information. Uh, Zelensky has done an amazing job of uh, rallying people behind him and his forces. But I think Russia was, like... They made a really poor prediction that they were going to easily go into Kiev and install a new regime, and that would not face any kind of resistance uh, even after. And I don't know if they have rethought that. I mean, it was a it was a dumb decision to begin with. I don't know if they have the foresight to rethink that and like settle for the Donbass and um, other you know Russian ethnically. Um, ethnic Russian areas uh, in the southeast. So I think they're still trying to look at the big picture, at the, the whole pie, um, but I don't think that they're going to get that. Well, I think the... Sorry to interrupt you, but... I'll, I'll just go quickly, and then we'll segue to you. Ben, yeah. I always thought the primary reason behind the invasion of Ukraine was not necessarily to overthrow the regime. I think that was part of it. I think the main crux was to create these breakaway republics like the Russians did in mm -hmm. 2008 in Georgia and have always had with Moldova yeah. with Transnistria because NATO has an unspoken rule, right? If a state does not have territorial integrity, as in it doesn't control all the affairs within its own borders that are officially recognized, that state will not enter NATO. That's why Moldova sure. isn't in, that's why Bosnia isn't in, that's why Georgia isn't in. So I thought that was always the goal because Russia was like, we don't need to control all of Ukraine to keep NATO out. Mm -hmm. We just need to control the part that's friendly to us yeah. and do business there. 
But but again, that, that's that's a point of contention. Who knows what's going on in Putin's mind? Well, you know? the thing I can say for this is, well, no, what you just said about NATO that is a true factor. Is like usually if a country does not own like control all of its territories, it will not be allowed to join NATO. That was one of the problems. Actually, I think it was with Romania when. Um, Romania and Moldova, they were debating over over unifying you know, you know, yes, joining that. EU yeah. and NATO. And then when the Transnistrian Republic in Moldova separated and created this massive this war, uh, that that kept them both separate. And Romania joined um, NATO and the EU. Moldova stayed itself. And I think um, honestly, like Putin already had. That ability, he took apart parts of Donetsk. He took away parts of Luhansk. I may go between the Russian and the Ukrainian pronunciations. I don't know if people care, but um, basically, um, he already had control over separatist republics, and then there's Crimea. He already had that objective, so he didn't really do much. I think more of the problems involve two things. One. Putin's ideological beliefs in what Ukraine stands for him and stands for his vision of the Russia of Russia. And damn Dugan. <laughs> yeah, you talk about Alexander Dugan too. I think that's one of the things because if you I've, we said this earlier previously in the podcast, if you look at papers written by Putin, there are he does show what he how he believes Ukraine what Ukraine is, especially for how important it is to Russia and Russian history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing with other areas of. Uh, interest in the former Soviet Union. But the other problem is also is Ukraine, even when they weren't a part of the EU or NATO, they had association agreements with the EU. They had agreements with NATO and they had a bunch of agreements that basically I would say in the Russian leadership's mind was the idea they saw it as they were a part of these organizations all but in name. And that is what scared them the most because one of the things that Russia fears the most in its Forever since the back day, back in the Mongols is invasion. They we've said this before. They've been invaded by the Mongols, Swedes, Poles, Brits. <laughs> that is true. The Brits. We forget about them. Then every podcast, Brian Reeves runs down who's invaded Russia and how it's gone. Like, this is how we start early, the and then we go, and then the after Americans. World War One. Yes, yeah, that is true. The, the Americans were Americans after World War One. The other thing, though. Um, but that sort of changed two days ago when Russia stated that they're okay with Ukraine joining the EU, but they can't join NATO. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, well, what do y'all think that? I think th they're that more potential. The I EU think has a military component too, right. so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? It does. I don't because, for example, it could be like, like look at Sweden, for example. Sweden is not in NATO, but they help NATO. Um, the same way where there's EU countries, um, or I guess even this notion with Ukraine, where yeah, you'll be part of that Eurozone per se. I guess if they decide to go that option or do like a, a, Swede, a Sweden, no, Switzerland option. But the thing is, like, as you said, the EU does have a military factor behind it. Now, I don't know if that's like an attack one deal, you attack all type framework, which I don't think it is. Um, but it's not NATO because then with NATO you have a you have a guaranteed of security by the United States, where now you have U.S. personnel, U.S. equipment, U.S. X, Y, and Z now on your border. And, and yeah, the EU thing. I mean, they have a military component, but logistics-wise, they've had problems. Like right. when they were when they were bombing Gaddafi in twenty eleven, right? They ran out of bombs. They had to rely on us to to supply them with the munitions they needed. So they have significant sustainment problems that they haven't quite figured out. And I think the Europeans 
also on their own are very reluctant to go to war again. True. I think they're very reluctant. They can do it. They have the will, maybe, if they're pushed, but... What's up, Aubrey? I was going to say, and this is a shout-out to a YouTuber that I follow. His name is Kraut. Check out his channel. It's pretty cool. Spell it out. K-R-A-U-T. Like the Deutsch way. Like the Deutsch way, that's right. <laughs> and he made an interesting video this past week about uh, the remilitarization of Europe. You know, countries like Germany, that they're remilitarizing me. Poland. That doesn't frighten me. Mm-hmm. Well, Germany does. Germany, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I want to go back to that, but we'll go ahead, Aubrey. Oh. I want to go back to this. But the point is, is that Europe and the EU in general, separate from NATO, mm-hmm. they've had just this long centuries tradition of you know of security agreements, mm-hmm. the concert of Europe, obviously, Potsdam, mm-hmm. Tehran conference, all these different ways of sort of carving Europe into these different security treaties and agreements. Mm-hmm. And now it's taken this, the invasion of Ukraine, to pretty much fuck all that up mm-hmm. and to reassess in the wake of all these different European countries who are now toting the arguments of, okay, do we stay neutral Mm -hmm. when something like this happens, or do we take a side? Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've already seen countries like Switzerland, Ireland, who want to take the gloves off, basically, and, and take a side. And... I just, I just think that it was just something interesting to bring up when, since we're on the EU right now. Yeah, I just had a quick question, like a quick show of hands around the table. Who is worried about Germany rearming? <laughs> Aubrey and Samaj, explain. We'll go, we'll go Samaj. Man, let's <laughs> take a look down memory lane. Um, but no, but in all seriousness, um, it's, if you look at just down to, you know, you know I love geography. Um, you laugh, but this is... Yeah, you'd marry it if you could. I, I would, but this is it's like serious insight on true German power. Um, there was always a fear, even by the French, if the Germans were ever to be united in all the same Literally. Even with the reunification, they, they, they feared it. Because just down to, if you look at the, the geographic makeup of Germany, it is prime for industrial power. It is prime for economic dominance. It is prime for technological advancements. I mean, they already are the most economically and technologically advanced country in Europe. They already are, beyond a doubt. If you see, looking at just the the German mentality, they only stop that mentality because of atrocities of World War II. They understand what they're capable of doing. They know this, but because of what they did, they put political, political philosophical restraints on them. We need to change our image in order for us to be re-welcomed back into the international community. If we look at even back to the days of the Roman Empire, German barbarians were feared of what they were capable of doing in the outer parts of the Roman Empire. Um, on top of that, if you going back to just pure geopolitics, if you're looking at Central Europe over to the Europe Mountains is primarily flat. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you saw the tactics in World War II by the Germans um, and how they were able to not just go to Poland, but literally to the outskirts of Moscow. Granted, if they did it in the spring, it would be a completely different scenario. Um, but whenever we talk about national spirit, 
whenever we talk about defense capabilities, whenever we talk about a country like Germany who understands its potential, uh, remember it's one of, when we look, go back to the European steel and coal community, Germany was the third was the third angle of that triangle. It was the UK, France, and Germany. And the only reason they did that was so they would never have war again. Was it because of, oh, let's, let's, have, let's hold hands, be friends, kumbaya. I was like, no, we're never doing this again. And we need to allow ourselves to become economically interdependent so that the cost of war will prohibit us from doing actual conventional warfare and we will negotiate through diplomacy, economic trade deals, etc. The thing with Europe, and it's interesting that you brought it up, is that it goes in these weird cycles. Is that there? There's always a reorientation of spheres of influences. Well, that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Well, that was even the city-state of Venice and the Ottoman Empire. That was weird. Um, or even down to the French um, and the Germans, or Italy with their notions of Mare Nostrum, um, or no. Oh. oh, or no, no the, light, the lights are off. I wanted to change, but no, I, like, no. I, I got. I like the trip through time. I always like that. But my question is, what's your problem with modern Germany? Is that my notions of a modern of a of a modern Germany rearming? It's a matter of, for example, it's a matter of once you rearm, and once you make that policy part of the new political culture. Mm -hmm. And let's say that there's something along the lines where you don't, you don't, you no longer have a chancellor that's moderate. Mm -hmm. You no longer have these political constraints on your usage of force. Where now you have your going through the cycle as it is now, and people are trying to determine spheres of influences. Mm -hmm. What does then that mean for Central Europe? And it's not even just Germany. It's the notions of my fear is, as Arthur uh, brought up, the militarization of Europe again. It's not just, oh, it's just Germany. Same thing for France. Same thing for Italy, etc. My reason's a bit shorter. No I'd <laughs> like to get background information online. It's, it's only because there have been elements within the German military over the past couple of years that have been... Right-wing. Pretty far, <laughs> pretty far right-wing. And to have that immense of power within your hands in such a short amount of time it, it's it's troubling to me it, it, it's just oh it just harkens back to memories of how the war world war ii eventually started so I mean, so just to clarify neither of you guys are afraid that the wehrmacht's gonna rise again from the ashes you're just worried that the possibility is there yes nazi zombies okay but that's what that's what like, 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 it's not a certainty for y'all you guys just think it's a possibility it's a possibility like, like we just toss it around I, I was just gonna. It sounds like you just want submissive allies. That's what I was thinking. That. Exactly. And my my thing where I'm come from. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not. seriously. No, but like if, if I always think of a state, if a state is truly independent, it has the ability to defend itself against enemies before well, and after. And, and, and that's what I'm thinking. Like if Germany feels like it needs to defend itself from Russian aggression, it should be able to realize. hundred percent. However. <laughs> uh, it's always a but. <laughs> no, but this is a true. This is a true. But we saw this with France, and not to piss off our German audience. No, I love yeah. the Germans. You know, I, yeah, you know, but it's like we saw this, for example, with France. When when, when uh, early on, when NATO was formed, they threw Loki, excuse me, went to bitch fit, and then left NATO, and then went off to do their own thing, and then came back eventually because they sold out of convenience. 
is that once you get to, once you have a perceived point where your military power can give you the perception that now you, your status has now been elevated to where if I ask you to ask you for help as an ally, man, like, okay, yeah, we can help you. But then now you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z if you want access to do your, your objectives. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is part of their sovereign capacity to do that. But now we're talking about also a continent where they don't want to be dependent on the United States as much as they want to be. So if you have Russia, not Russia, if you have Germany, if you have France, they're like, I'm going to get to, uh, to Germany. If you have Germany, if you have France, who they know by their history, if they go independent, they can do it. And who's going to stop them? That is where a concern is going down the future for mutual cooperation and peace. I think these states have every right to do that. And if anything, it gives less of an economic liability on the United States to provide for these uh, allies in Europe. And it lessens an economic burden on the U.S. And we can spend that hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars now on our own worries at all. I mean, Americans have been complaining, America has been (laughs) complaining forever that, like, Europe is not paying its fair share in the defense budget. And now they're saying, ever since, since, was it 2015 when the Warsaw Declaration got passed by NATO? Every every state sign off said, we're going to spend 2% of our GDP on defense. It's more complicated Mm -hmm. than that, but that was the goal. And I think only the Baltic states, Greece, through some kind of economic fuckery, is able to say they're spending 2%. (laughs) And then us, and then the Brits. Those are the only ones that are doing it, and yeah. that, and that's that's a problem. There's something well involving uh, Samaj's uh, glorious speech on Germany and why it should not rearm. Um, I'm not. Whoa. <laughs> that, it sounded whoa. like that to me. I'm sorry. He just wants to invade Germany and like. <laughs> I did not say they should not rearm. I'm all for allies of being able to protect their sovereign interests and sovereign integrity. I'm not against that. However, I'm a realist. If I have the power, I get it. And if I have the power to do what I want to do, I'm going to do it. Again, reassess whether that's whether that's you know security maximization or if I'm doing purely defense. That's entirely up to me. I get it. But my thing is this. If we're talking about the notions of we're allies and we're supposed to be strategic partners, and then yes, you are absolutely correct. If Germany can fend for themselves, amen. I don't have to spend X, Y, Z billions of dollars to assist you. I get it. Yes. But I know people. And that if there are individuals who get into particular situations, as we've seen through history, where they're able to amass or take advantage of military prowess in order to achieve whatever ideological goals that they may have for their nation, they will do it at any and all costs. That is where my problem is. And this is not just, this is not a stunt against Germany. I'm all about ally equilibriums. I'm all about everybody being able to complement each other, especially for a common good. But I also understand pessimism and that, you know, you can have an, a one million active military in Germany but will that stop 
a, a country from achieving a greater goal. No, so now back to my the point I wanted to bring up. Uh, was Why are you rubbing your hands together like that? Really got some. I wasn't expecting him to change career. Anyway, no. The thing I wanted to bring up was with what you said about Germany. It also brings up the fears that some people have actually of Japan, yeah. which is the problem with pe- some, like uh, for the, the problem with Japan, like that some people fear specifically maybe South Southeast Asian countries is. If they rearm themselves, which is what some people have been seeing up there recently, they'll go on to a militarist path similar, or they would, yeah, when they're going to go more towards the interest, they're going to move separate from the U.S. In some ways, that might be a good idea, saying, oh, we, it takes away the burdens of costs, et cetera, et cetera. But the other problem is, in Japan, there are, there are militarists who have influence within the government with members of parliament, as well as some of the former prime ministers. Shinzo Abe was a part of a right-wing group that advocated for remilitarizing Japan and said that the Japanese military crimes never happened. Like, war crimes never happened during the Second World War. And for those who don't know, the Japanese war crimes were really bad. Yes, and that's and, all I'm saying. And no, the problem, yeah, the problem is, is I can agree with what you just said, is you, like, even if it sounds like it's good in our interest, how long will it be till those countries cause something where we will have to involve ourselves into another war? Same thing with India. There's always this notion that, well, we need to essentially give India any type of resources they need in order to properly counter China. I agree. However... What if there comes a point in time when you have someone else along the line that comes into power and says that, oh, we've had all this assistance from the Americans and they were making very functional nuclear power aircraft carriers, etc. We want to dominate the Indian Ocean in any type of trade route um, that's between East Africa to Indonesia. Now we have a serious problem on our hands where we have a country of over 1.2 billion people where they have the world's largest democracy, the, one, the second largest military in the world. And they're now fully effective and damn near on par with the United States. Not to say that they're not an ally or strategic partner, but now we have another greater problem when it comes to security of international trade lines, which has always been part of our our ideology since Thomas Jefferson and the Great White Fleet. And that brings up a fun little quote I always like to say. <laughs> That's, what he called it. That's what he called it, the Great White Fleet. You know that? Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson said naval ships to fight Burberry pirates. Right. Oh, we're yeah, but, but he, did that for, he, did, he did it for any, he did it for a small scale goal. He wasn't going for any regime change. He was, he was protecting the purely American interest. That's all he was Which trying was. Which was. Which was. Which was. To get back the, exactly. the hostages from exactly. the Burberry pirates. Exactly. Okay, but going back to your India point. Okay. Russia is now at a point, it just ties back to India and the Russia-Ukraine situation. Russia is a nuclear power that can easily arm India with those nuclear ships that you are now so worried about. So why are we not putting ourselves in that situation when Russia could easily put themselves in that situation? Russia doesn't have the long-term capacity to provide India with that type of technology that they will need in order to ensure a fully functional near-peer competitor armed forces with the United States. So they're not going to do it. Plus, that's not in their interest to beef up India to the point where Russia's replaced. Okay. I, I, w- I will say this, just from talking from like a basing perspective. The fact that the United States has bases all over the world in what, like about 180 countries, mm-hmm. give or take. Give or take. That's great as long as we're not fighting any large-scale conflict against a near-peer competitor. 
The minute that shit pops off, we are in a horrible position because our, we, we have no economy of force. We have no principle of that. We are spread throughout the world and then we have to redeploy, re-engage, and funnel these people out with ships and equipment and that is very dangerous and it takes time and it is very vulnerable for roughly one to two years. It, 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 it's a problem. It does. And, and, but it's a calculated choice is all I'm saying. Like we, it's, we, we can't say we're gonna police the world and then be in a position where we can efficiently strike against a near-peer competitor, which is what our military's been trying to get to for a long period of time. It, it does, it, and Wayne, Wayne Wright's right. Uh, it, it is an inhibitor, and that's why we're trying to do it with arming and training these different yes. countries in whatever national security. And that's smart. Use international arming cooperation forums. Do whatever, yes. But they need to be able to defend themselves. That's, that is the most important thing, both for us, to be able to strike a near-peer competitor efficiently, and for them to defend themselves. But that, that's, again, that's just me speaking out of my ass. It doesn't matter. I'm confused where the notion that I wanted to demilitarize Germany came from. Yeah. We, we kind of went off topic. I'm so, I'm so glad I threw that Germany wrench in there for you guys. Like, I'm so we got, we got, we got it. All right, so, okay. Steering back on course, I wanted to, to ask you guys if you guys have been tracking uh, Russia's economic maneuvers to get around the SWIFT sanctions. Have you guys been tracking what they've been trying to do at all? All I know is they want now gas purchases to be in rubles. Yes, and they've done a they've done a tier tier two tiered thing to kind of bolster their economic standing. So the first thing they did is uh, the Russian central bank they pegged one gram of gold to five thousand rubles, which is about fifty dollars. Um, and they also made it like you said, Brian, so that Russian oil and gas can only be purchased in rubles. Um, so Europe, what Europe needs to do if they if they go along with this, right? If they go along, yeah, it is very hot. I know, but if, if they go along with this, Europe's going to need to uh, buy more rubles from Putin in gold, or pay directly with rubles, which will create a lot more demand for rubles and then hence strengthen the currency. Um, and I am not sure if that will pay off for Russia. I don't know if Europe's going to actually do that. We'll just have to see. But that's that's I'm saying that's the economic goal that Russia's trying to use to get out of these swift sanctions, or as many of them as possible, and keep the ruble economically viable. Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> I, I have not been following the swift system story closely. Well, well it's yeah. the swift thing, I mean, it's, it's an example of, it's kind of what I think Lola brought up earlier. Sanctions are good if everyone signs off on them and they work right away. They don't work right away. The free market's going to find a way, and Russia's going to find a way to squirt out from under these sanctions and survive. Well, that's literally what happened in 2014 after the EU and the U.S. did similar did sanctions against Russia. It crippled. It hit Russia very hard in that first year, but they figured out ways to get around it. They oriented their economy to other countries, and it helped them to rejuvenate themselves. And then with this invasion, even that's happened recently. Again, it's the same thing. U.S. and EU sanctions, this time they hurt it harder than uh, 2014. But what's funny is when I looked at a map on this, it's excluding just Western, excluding European and U.S. and Canada and maybe Australia thrown in there, no one else has really put out sanctions on Russia. What is Kazakhstan doing? Oh, they're uh, they're what, trying to figure out what they want to do in this entire situation. So what, what they're <laughs> trying the barn. Well, what I was tracking, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Russian businesses to kind of do like a shell operation there, 
So they can kind of squirt around sanctions that way. Like say, oh, we're based in Kazakhstan, but we can still do business and hence squirt around in that way. Yet again, another example of, of sanctions not probably being the best economic tool you could use. Um, but that's, that's something we should all kind of keep track of. Follow the money. One thing we should look at is, was that specifically because Kazakhstan wanted this to happen, or was it because Putin called in a favor? Because think yes. about it. What happened yes. with, what happened with yes. the beginning of January, there was, a, there was a uprising, or close to uprising in Kazakhstan, and the Kazakhstani authorities asked for Russia to help to, help to put down the, put down the um, protesters, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And that basically does give Putin leverage, leverage same way as how um, Russia helping Belarus in 2020 gave him leverage to be like, all right, we're going to be using your, your territory as a military base now. So the question is, how much of this is poli political rep leverage over like what the Kazakhstani authorities want? Because they already know where the ship's going and they don't entirely like it. They've already said, like, if a new Iron Curtain comes, that they don't want to be on the side of Russia for this one. No, I think that's, I think that's well spotted. Is there anything else, like, we want to talk about, you know, Russian-Ukraine developments? Is there anything you guys really want to hit on? Because if not, we can go into Mexico. Yeah. So far from God, so close to the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so and and, I, and I, I believe, I believe, Lola, you have uh, something about the journalists you really want to talk about and, and kind of hit on. Yeah. So I mean, Mexico is definitely a sharp, sharp change of pace from the Ukraine situation, but it does hit pretty close to home for the situations in the United States, and it is semi-relatable to what we were talking about in Ukraine, at least from a sanctions perspective since a lot of the situation in Mexico does have roots in sanctions from the United States down to Mexico. So there's a few correlated situations that have been plaguing Mexico for the last couple decades. Uh, the first of which is the focus on cartels from getting related into the agriculture business, which is not something that people generally associate with cartels. Generally, people associate cartels with assassinations, killings, different types of violence, political uh, affiliations, uh, threatening different judges. Um, cocaine is an agricultural product. Cocaine is an agricultural product. That's correct. Uh, theft, kidnapping, grand larceny, that kind of stuff. Uh, but recently, especially since the late 1980s, Mexican cartels have been getting involved in three different agricultural products. Logging, limes, and avocados. That's amazing. You need the lime. It's not the same. So cocaine is a pretty classic one. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's a good one, huh? Uh, the cocaine in Mexico, though, generally isn't produced in Mexico. It generally just trafficked through there. It comes out of Chile, Peru, or, uh, and uh, Colombia, gen generally. Venezuela, a little bit as well. Uh, but then the other co-related issue to the cartel involvement in agriculture is the killing of journalists. So about 120 journalists have died in Mexico since 2000, which doesn't seem like a whole lot, but in 2022 alone, eight have died. That's a pretty big, a pretty big escalation just in the last year. 
So in between the last two years, about 17 have died. So there's a whole big escalation happening, especially in the last five years in Mexico. So why is that happening? Organized crime has undermined the political infrastructure, economic stability of Mexico. This has earned Mexico the grim title of being one of the, if not the most dangerous country in the world for being a journalist. Uh, so between February 1st and March 17th of 2021, four journalists have died. That's a lot. It's, don't wanna be a journalist in Mexico right now. So um, there have been multiple protests, multiple different journalists have been um, refusing to go down there and participate if they are part of a uh, larger company that wants them to report down there, they've been going on strike. But most journalists in Mexico are independent contractors and that's how they make a living, so most of them are having to go down and report if they want to put food on the table for their families. Um, unfortunately, the president of Mexico is not helping the matter. If anything, it's making it worse. So the current president is President Lopez Obrador, and he's made consistent remarks that have been doing both of the following. Uh, firstly, dismissing the threats that journalists are facing, and two, blaming the U.S. for emboldening journalists and for turning the people against the government. So uh, the people being Mexican civilians against the Mexican government. Um, so there's an intertwined relationship in Mexico between cartel violence and state-sponsored political violence, which causes blame and excuses to be easily handed off to the opposing party when a, a murder and execution of a journalist occurs. So if, if a journalist is investigating a corrupt politician, the the politician uh, who's being investigated can hire a hit on that journalist by a cartel or by an assassin and then just blame it on a rival cartel who didn't commit the crime or a, a different hitman and just get away with it. Or um, if uh, a cartel is being investigated, they can just blame it on a corrupt politician and then no one gets, uh, gets uh, no one is put in jail for these crimes and it's really horrific. Uh, sorry to interrupt, it's thinking about what you just said, it reminds me, like I remember a story a long time ago where 44, I think it was like politically active students in Mexico, they uh, got, they were going to a protest to go to protest against some governor and a, the governor hired a cartel to kill those students essentially to take them. I think that was one, I know it was the police took them and then they went to the cartel, am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. The police arrest or the police uh, arrested the bus that they were in or something or pulled them over and then a cartel just slaughtered everyone including the police officers that were there to make mm -hmm. it look like a hit. There's something else I did want to ask you involving everything involving cartels and everything is um, I guess in the most recent years I've heard excluding just I heard stuff about more fighting going on between cartels to the point that some province some prop states in Mexico have been turning to war zones as those even just actual cartels taking over towns to the point that they're controlling their economies, the governments, and all that. And I wanted to just hear your opinion on that. Yeah, so I most of my research in Mexico is focused on the state of Michoacan. So the state of Michoacan is governed by... I know where you're going. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. It's big. So the state of Michoacan is governed by four big cartels, but I mostly focus on three of them. Those three being uh, La, the CJNJ, 
which is la cartel de Jalisco Nueva Generación, uh, la familia, la nueva familia, la nueva familia michoacana, and uh, oh my god, and the they next love, they love they love to stretch out the name. Yeah. It's so long. <laughs> it's it's Spanish. That's, that's why we have acronyms for all their names. Look at look at Fark. I know, I'm looking at my list of acronyms right now. I'm trying to remember like the four or five letters of each name. Oh, is Zelensky speaking right now? No. Yeah, we got, sorry, we got the news on your back. <laughs> We're watching uh, Russian sorties that had like 300 plus sorties in the past 24 hours. Yeah. So it's, it's interrupting the Mexico yeah. stuff. But no, yeah. no, 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 no back to the cartels. No, it's cool. Anyway, these three major cartels compete constantly for rival territory and rival control over the aforementioned uh, agricultural businesses. So I'm going to have to go back to the agricultural industry thing for a bit. Um, throughout the 2010s, the avocado industry transformed from being just an integral part of Mexican cuisine into being a trendy health food revered all around the Western world. Uh, when demand in North America and Europe skyrocketed, uh, the value of Mexico's avocado industry quadrupled throughout the 2010s to the 2020s. And the fruit's rapidly increasing popularity caused Mexico's avocado exports to only the U.S. market, just grew 16% between 2018 and 2019. Um, this caused uh, Michoacan, or, sorry, so uh, Michoacan produces about 80% of Mexican, Mexico's avocados, which is ton, and that's mostly due to their climate and geography, which is ideal for Mexico's green gold of avocados. Uh, and that causes their annual export value, which is most of their GDP per capita, as well as their GDP for the country and their uh, state, uh, to be around $2.4 billion. Uh, so this boom was extremely beneficial for cartels, uh, and they began to serve as the de facto governing bodies in especially the rural farming regions. So cities were mostly exempt from this because uh, the local governments had retained a smattering of control. But again, this has begun to wane, especially in the 2020s. Yeah, no, that waning of control in the urban areas is crazy. I remember it was, it was October 2019. There's a town in Sinaloa uh, called Culiacan. Yeah. And I believe Mexico's police forces and armed forces, they had arrested El Chapo's sons, both of them, maybe, maybe just the younger one. And they had him in custody, and all of a sudden the Sinaloa cartel starts counterattacking, and they force... Mexico's armed forces to give up El Chapo's son. Like that's the, like a non-state actor went toe to toe with a state military and they won. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. Yeah, and, and this, this and this is a problem because unlike Ukraine, this is right on our doorstep, right? Like, I mean, I'm not saying Mexico is going to become a failed state, but they are definitely weaker. And they've already become a failed people. democracy. Well, the thing yeah. with Mexico that I was I've seen throughout history is. It's geography keeps it separated in some aspects. You can look at the like the mountains that separate some of these states, yeah, so make it very way. distant from Mexico City as well as mm -hmm. its control. And especially you can look at Chiapas, the war that happened there in the nineties. Like one, 
that's one of the factors as well as just the fact it was so far away from Mexico City to be able to do anything that they went to open rebellion, which created us, baby. That's right. <laughs> Basically, coming back. And that's the other thing with even just the other the other states in Mexico. It's not like for us, it's easier because we have we have a better road network and we have other ways of communication to keep everyone in line. But for Mexico, it is very different. Like infrastructure, geography, all these factors do are very beneficial in controlling a state for every country, no matter where it is around the world. And Mexico lacks institutional trust. Like let's be honest here. There's here, like you can lend your lawnmower to a neighbor and expect that like you'll get it back in good peace. There. I wouldn't bet on it. Like, hey, I went to I went to a, I went to a I went to a jeweler in Mexico. They gave me a they gave me a necklace that they said it was silver and said it was just some random metal. <laughs> they be lying. They will be bullshitting on you. That's true. It's very true. Yeah. Uh, cartels are consistently the sole reliable factor for keeping infrastructure alive in rural zones, mm -hmm. which means they're the sole reliable factor for keeping a lot of families with food on the table, which puts a lot of civilians in a really terrible situation where they can't betray the cartels, they have to just keep supporting the cartels, which means if, a sta if the state comes in and goes, hey, can you tell us where the cartel is right now? And can you tell us like when they're operating, like where they're currently operating, where are their zones of operation? But they can't say anything because if they do, their house is burned down the next day and their daughter is killed. Mm -hmm. You can't just do that. So, so my question is, like, this is interesting. Like, I love talking about Mexico. It's kind of my huckleberry. But Lola, what, is there a solution uh, that the Mexican state can kind of take to at least mitigate this violence or retain some type of authority in which allows like the marginalization of violence in Mexico? Like, do, do you, can you think of any way forward that Obrador or any of the government agencies can take? I mean, it's a really slow path forward because the reason cartels got so powerful in the first place is because of low state accountability and high levels of government corruption. So if you lower those two factors, you should theoretically be able to weaken levels of cartel control in certain areas that are close to levels of state capital. So if you have areas that are um, not super geographically isolated, like we just talked about, those areas should be the first to fall out of cartel control. But in rural areas, those are kind of already sacked, and you're really not getting them back without a heavy military commitment. But again, <laughs> Mexico has tried heavy military commitments against the cartels before, and it doesn't work. Because the cartel has hired private security companies, which are made up out of elite soldiers in Mexico's military that are being paid far more by the cartel than the Mexican state would ever pay them. So they right. just... Yes. Yeah, it's just Mexican special ops soldiers bailed on their job in the special ops forces in Mexico and just went, hey, the cartel's going to pay me a hundred times more than you are, and I work one-tenth of the hours. Capitalism Great. work, y'all. Like, that's, that's yeah. It honestly sounds work. like the Colombian cartels, because even, like, during... That time, there was, I remember there was a story, this was the Cali cartel in Colombia, when Pablo Escobar was still in power, there was a rival cartel named the Cali cartel, and what they did is they hired a private military co company to do an assassination against uh, 
against um, Pablo Escobar. And I just imagine that how a organization, it could be a terrorist group, it could be a cartel, anything, can hire a military company, a PMC, private militarist company, to do operations for or just to do assassination is insane. It tells you how much money these guys have. So much money. They can burn bricks of cash and still have ten more bricks to start. What well, I wouldn't do for that start. problem, like... I'm gonna let it work for you. <laughs> yeah. oh, man. So, in short, to go back to your to your question, Wayne, right? Mm-hmm. Um, government corruption is really what you have to start with tackling, and in rural areas there have been programs that have worked, um, I am trying to find the name of one of them that I've uh, written about before. Oh yeah, it's called, this is going to be another hard one that I might butcher, it's very long. The acronym is the C-R-A-C-P-C, so Coordinadora Regional de Autoridades Comunitarias Policia Comunitaria. I know, very long. So it, it's pretty much an indigenous Mexican community organization that works in rural communities where you have a, a, a small structure of uh, community elders that works together with a few representatives of whatever cartel is functioning in that area. And they have weekly or bi-weekly meetings and they just kind of chat with each other and they eat together and they share food, they share drinks. And it's just like, okay, we don't want to be hurt. We just want to live here. Uh, we don't want to really help you. Uh, these are the elders talking to the cartels, but it's like, hey, uh, what can we do to just stay out of your way? What can you do to not harm us in your work? We will provide you with whatever hideouts you need from the government if they show up. Uh, just keep us out of your violence and we will keep the government out of your business. And those have worked remarkably well for the last 20 years at reducing violence in these communities. Um, Arranged marriages between cartels and the uh, younger people in these uh, communities have worked pretty well at keeping the peace. uh, And the cartels have avoided harming these villages for a long time and have even protected them from government raids and rival cartel raids. Um, So, I mean old school tribal politics. Yeah, this honestly just sounds like what we had to deal with in Afghanistan right off the bat. Honestly. Yeah, old school tribal politics. But No, and that's the other thing that's a little bit sad because I can't say this is like everywhere, but there are similar simulations, situations to this in other parts of Latin America. You can look at, at Colombia with FARC and you can look at even stuff with the, the shiny path in Peru, which was during the 80s. It was the communist movement in the 80s. And even now, recently, we're starting to see some rising drug violence in Argentina, which is a country that no one kind of expects for drug violence to happen, weirdly enough. But, um, no, it's a thing that's with, that's been happening in Latin America recently. I can't, I'm not going to say that, oh, it's, like, all of these countries are, like, failed states or in the same situation as Mexico, because, no, they all have varying different degrees of stability, either or not. For example, Argentina, it has, a, its situation is vastly different than the situation going on in Mexico, or even you could look at Colombia and its Amazonian regions. 
at, but like it is something you do see and I sometimes I do wonder if it does involve more than just oh groups rising up it could involve other factors such as what I just said about like just the government is not able to control certain regions due to distances as well as infrastructure or even just etc <laughs> I guess well, well how can Mexico's instability really affect the United States well, that's the thing, is you can... Aubrey got something. Oh, no, no, go. Oh, you, you pointed at take me. This right. Take this thing. Okay, take it, Brian. I'll make my thing quick, Brian. but you can look at what happened with the Mexican Civil War during the um, during the 1910s, where you have you had some groups that were going, that were going, that were kind of having fights with border guards in the United States, with the United States, and even the U.S. had to do some ventures into Mexico. You could see... The conflict spilling over so especially because it's obvious Mexican cartels do operate in the U.S. Sure, they're more they might be more cracked down in the U.S. than they are in Mexico, but still, it will spill over violence, and it will affect more communities in the United States, which would be bad. And I mean, we may have to involve ourselves more into Mexican Mexican affairs, and even go further beyond. Now, Aubrey, you had something. Oh, I'm. Uh, you actually took the cake. I will admit, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not the biggest expert on Mexican affairs or North American affairs. As it is. Lola, what you, you already answered that. What do you got? I got nothing. I'm in the same boat. Uh, yeah. Not a huddle bear? All right, cool. Samaj? Man, you really, you guys don't mess with me. All right, cool. Unfortunately, we're more Brian and I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't, <laughs> Actually, I I do. Well, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. What do you know just about any type of Cuban political influence operations in Mexico? Do you know? Is there any connection there with that? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of Cuban migrants in Mexico. Uh, there have been since the rise of the Castros um, in the nineteen early nineteen fifties, really. Um, I don't know a lot currently about the role of Cuban immigrants in Mexico. Um, I mean, I know the Castros and, uh, um, what's his name? Oh, che Guevara himself got their start in Mexico. Yeah. So that's exciting. Um, not a whole lot currently, but. Well, are we going somewhere with that, Aubrey? I, I think no, 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 I'm yeah. just curious. Like, do you know something I don't? Like, no, 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 Cubans, I, I, is this some Red Dawn shit? Are they gonna like? <laughs> well, no, I, I just, I know, like, Cuban. We all, we all know our, our good friends, the Cubans and the Venezuelans. They're always up to something, and I just think with the destabilization of Mexico being a hotbed for not only cartels but for some sort of hostile state actor to take advantage of, and. Uh, the United States in some way. I, I just just picking back off of what Wayne Wright said about how does this affect the United States, and I, in my mind that there are just there's not just one way that our approach to Mexico uh, affects us. There are multiple ways, and uh, I think the more that we open that up to discussion, and the more that we and eventually me, expand my horizons on North America and the threats that we do face as a country from uh, not only Mexico, but Canada, I could say, uh, I think would really help us reach that sort of, I don't know, just 
just interesting discussion. Or, or, I do or, know or one happened. country that actually likes the fact that Mexico is unstable <laughs> and that they're able to do work with cartels. Yeah. Stick a while, guys. Iran. No. No. I think that's they more Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay. Iran is much more concerned with the tri-border area as well as Venezuela. Yeah. But Mexico, China. Yeah. Reason why fentanyl. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, other than Florida, Mexico is one of the main gateways into the United States regarding uh, fentanyl. Um, so, I mean, especially, you know, you can... Whether it's front companies established by cartels or dealing with the cartels themselves, it's especially in Sinaloa, it's a good way for China to um, import heavy um, sources of fentanyl into the United States. Um, it's weird though because when it came to like certain drugs, I forget what year it was. Um, China, it's funny that China actually banned. Like the usage of, if I'm correctly, spending on something else um, in China. Was it was it not opium, um, heroin? Maybe? I don't know if it was heroin. Um, no, I would have to look yeah, at it. Yeah, but essentially, what they did was they banned the chemical property for the drug. Smart. So that that's what you think. What somebody else did was just added another chemical to it. And changed the entire chemical property <laughs> to get around Chinese regulations mm-hmm. and then mass produced it over there to sell it here. I mean, America has the largest drug market, um, one of the largest drug markets in the world, oh, I should say. It's fun to mention some of this stuff. Oh, maybe it's not fun to mention it, but no, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's Basically, interesting. the thing to mention about this is even we talked about this in previous podcasts, like, we there are some. There are some like sources that do say that the Russians have been involved in parts of the drug market, specifically in Venezuela. Of course. But um, and it's and it's not on um, it's not really that out of the box in that aspect to say that there are other countries that are involved in themselves, especially even maybe some of the events that are going on in Mexico. Like I, as I think Aubrey was trying to say, there's a possibility that the Cuban DGI, the Cuban intelligence services, are involved in some aspects of this, trying to influence certain areas to help to disable, help to destabilize parts of the U.S. Even in some cases, which would be interesting. So, uh, while I don't have a comment on the drug relationship between Mexico and foreign countries and the threat to the U.S., I do have quite a few comments about Mexico and China's relationship and how that can threaten the U.S. Please. So, while Mexico is not an official partner of China through the Belt and Road Initiative, like much of Latin America is, which is a whole other threat to the U.S., a um, whole other security risk to Latin America in itself, but that's a whole different podcast. Um, Port Veracruz is uh, the home to about 73% of Mexican imports within Mexico itself, and a lot of those are from the United States. Especially drunk college yeah. sophomores, yeah. Yeah. They're probably there right now, honestly. Right now. Yes. So China is fully upgrading Port, Port Veracruz for free, pretty much. What, what what do you when you say upgrading? Clarify. Are they widening the port? Or are they adding new storage facilities? Uh, do you have any insight on that? Well, they're giving it a one point 
$5 billion upgrade with uh, new terminals, new okay. ships, new shipping containers, uh, upgrading the container wharf square meter edge, square meter edge? Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, and they're doing this all in conjunction with Chinese companies. Um, they're adding heavy container zones, refrigerated container zones, have increasing the structural capabilities and loading uh, capabilities, adding housing project to it, more empty container loading zones, increasing water and electricity programs nearby so that there, it's never uh, without power. So that's a huge uh, that's a huge benefit. To my Mexico. question is sorry to interrupt your thought. Uh, my question is is China giving a loan for all of this? They don't do grants. China doesn't do grants. <laughs> China also doesn't do uh, loans as we like to think about them in the U.S. Mm -hmm. China's pretty much just going, hey, we'll just do this for you as long as we get to use the port until the money that we poured into it is paid off in our terms. That was my point I actually wanted to get to because yeah. literally it's the BRI system working yeah, it's the on BRI American system of life. BRI with different steps. So yeah. just look all so that America means and Africa. China will just be using Port Veracruz for as long as they want until as much money that they poured into this project is paid off through the amount of money that China ships through Port Veracruz. <laughs> And then that's not the only threat that this project uh, poses to the U.S. Because China is also known for doing IUU fishing. Do you guys know what that stands for? I think I know it is, but I don't know the exact terminology. Illegal, unauthorized, and unregulated Okay, the fishing, fishing. then. So they've been conducting this all over Latin and Central America for... 30 years. They did it all over Africa. They overfished the entire population of seafood throughout Africa. Now the sea, the sea floor is barren. Great. Now they're doing that to Latin America. They're going to move their way up through North America as well. <clears throat> the U.S. will probably say no. We'll probably put a hard stop to that. But that doesn't matter. Fish fucking migrate. <laughs> they don't stay in one place. <laughs> They'll do that, yeah. <laughs> so, overfishing in Latin America, great. Nice now all the fish in North America are gone too. That's just what happens. So, Latin America has been letting them do this as one of these repayment systems for the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and Mexico is also letting them do this as a way to pay this back. So I like to debate that because Ecuador was not really happy in 2020 when they were no. in the Galapagos. No, but they couldn't enforce it. Okay, are the Mexicans going to be able to conduct maintenance or are they going to have to contract out to Chinese companies? Uh, China's offering to conduct maintenance. Oh my god. They're keeping, they're keeping maintenance uh, trucks and like okay. crews there. So they're, they're pretty much saying, your soul yeah. is mine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But on the other end, it's funny though, a few weeks ago, the Congo kicked China out of their largest coal mine. Well, cobalt, copper mine. The Democratic Republic? The Democratic Republic of okay, Congo. Okay. And then yesterday, they joined the East African community, um, which is amazing. Wait, that's the one with uh, Tanzania, mm -hmm. Kenya. Oh, crap, that's big, actually. Yeah, the Congo joined the East African community, and then, like I said, a few weeks ago, they removed China from one of their largest... Um, copper cobalt mines, which China desperately needs. Um, 
So now, when when you say removed, you mean they're like nationalized? It's like their companies have been kicked out. Okay. Um, what was the impetus for that? What What was the reason? I mean, do you know? I don't know the the details of it, but I know the Congo has been moving towards trying to get some sort of economic stability. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a poll came out a few weeks ago where, on average, about sixty between sixty three and sixty five percent of Africa are sick and tired of foreign countries and foreign entities coming onto the continent and dictating what they do with their resources. Yeah. Um, so the Congo, um, especially with their massive deposits of coltan and cobalt, which we need for literally everything here in front of us, mm-hmm. um, they removed China from one of their largest mines. And then yesterday they moved towards joining the East African um, community um, on top of this massive continent free trading area um, that they're establishing um, to work out bilateral um, tariff agreements, um, but also to further cooperate to increase uh, interstate trading without the presence of foreign entities, um, and that includes China. On top of that, Google finally got one of their underwater um, telecom submarine cables um, to West Africa. So uh, now, technically, Africa is starting to get part of that 5G um, grid. Um, so that's one thing that countries like China, as well as Russia, do not want, um, especially if the Congo is able to stabilize their government and their economy to crack down on illegal gold smuggling that's going on in northeastern um, Congo on the border of Rwanda, Uganda, um, as well as in regulations regarding child workers in these cobalt and coal time mines, um, addressing their warlord situations that NGOs love to work with because it's you, you get your resources for cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny with what you're saying. It was like there's actually a book that came out like I think it was 2013 or 2015. It's uh, <clears throat> called China's Second Continent by mm-hmm. Howard French. And it was a very good book because it did talk about a lot of things you just said, where basically it well it talked more specifically about how Chinese operations work in Africa. The person who wrote the book, he interviewed people, Chinese uh, migrants who moved to Africa to start businesses and stuff, and he documented very specifically how those migrants acted in China, in Africa in African countries, as well as just how business practices work and showed how the local population thought of it, and it, it shows exactly what you just said. Like, there's a lot of African countries, like, populations of African countries that do not like how China operates in the country, especially because when China comes into these countries, they promise a big amount of money for some project, but as we've learned of Latin America and Mexico and Veracruz, is, it's like, all right, here's some money. Now, we want you to use this for Chinese companies to uh, build the entire project. Mm-hmm. Also, all the skilled labor goes to the Chinese specialists over there. As for the your, uh, African, um, as for African uh, workers, let's give them the menial jobs. Yeah, that'll work. Well, it's not then, just that. For the Chinese, um, they have two options when it comes to their investments. Um, one is to invest into the infrastructure to get Chinese access to the resources. Um, to the to the coastlines, etc., or they can invest into the actual African workforce. But then that means that Chinese workers won't be needed if you're training the actual population. 
So essentially what China is able to do, and this is not just in Africa, but this is just anywhere in, the, in what's perceived as the global south, is that China will essentially provide billions of dollars to develop, let's say, a, um, a train rail from a major resource de uh, deposit to the coastline. Well, then what they would then do once they establish that train line or whatever, uh, you know, transportation infrastructure, they'll then bid to build a port to then connect that train line to the port. Well, then now that you created this port that's created by the Chinese, I only want Chinese workers to operate it. So then you bring in your Chinese workers and then now you give billions or even millions of dollars to this particular African government and say, okay, well, we'll build you a new presidential palace or we'll make sure that we'll rig the next election or we'll make sure that your political opponents um, are arrested or under surveillance, etc. So you know whenever they're going to do something. Um, that way they can get ownership of the mineral resources they can get and then let's say these African nations or very poor nations they can't pay the quote unquote debt China seizes it so now you yourself no longer own it I do you can't do anything about that but no matter what China gets all the money and then they, yeah, they get, get the and money. then they get the infrastructure <laughs> in the end they, at the end of the day the money that they provide goes right back to China that's all it does plus interest plus interest that is the things that I built is now, are now mine um, that includes underwater cables that they attempted to do in, in East Africa. Um, and, now, and now, as we talked about now with Mexico, what they're doing there, the port, and then they tried to make, you know, the Guatemala Canal. That was fun. I don't think that's going through. I think it was yeah, Nicaragua. It was Nicaragua, Yeah, yeah. It, it's been going through a lot of problems. Right. Of these the fish. Um, but that's the same thing they were doing. They are doing in Thailand to get around the Strait of Malacca. Yeah. Um, but... So you're saying all in all in Africa, China's been having a bad time and America's been sitting back kind of gloating? Basically. Good. Lots of that's yeah. you know, <laughs> something coming out of the weekend. I mean, it's, and I always told, now I tell people, like, keep your eyes on Africa. Um, it may seem boring to a lot of people. Keep your eyes on Africa. And the reason why I say that, about 2050, for example, Nigeria will be the third largest country in the world by population. It will beat the United States by population. By 2100, half of global births will come from Sub-Saharan Africa. The average age in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, is about 18. Which pretty much tells you, at least right now, the average household is about 4. Point, the birth rate is like 4.5. Hmm. Uh, a household like, oh wow. Uh, Nigeria, for example, provides West Africa with about 70% of their energy needs. Um, in addition to that, you have ample resources that are continuing to be untapped in Africa that we literally need for technological advancements. Um, unfortunately, Africa does go through the resource curse. Um, it's blessed with so many minerals that, um, unfortunately, due to institutional corruption, a lot of those resources aren't really put to good use. Um, however, we see that the possibilities are endless on this continent. It's just a matter of assisting them in their own, helping them mold their continental identity in the modern world by allowing them to do it. Not us going in and saying, this is who I think you are, this is what I think you should do, and that's why I actually like the East African community. 
they're figuring out their post-colonial problems. Weren't they trying to create a country at some point? Like so that was East African Federation. Okay, so I'm thinking something different. Um, so that was like Kenya. Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Tanzania Uganda, South, South Sudan, right. I think Rwanda. Rwanda as and, well. And uh, Burundi, Burundi. Yes. They all want, and Rwanda has been demonstrating itself very well economically. Oh, they've been doing more than that. Just look at Mozambique. <laughs> mm, that's a different conversation. Um, but anyways, we're talking about China. I think we can, if we, if we have time. Yeah, I mean, we've got time if you want to talk about it. Um, I, I just wanted to, I put this in here as the third topic because normally we get through like three topics a, a podcast. And also because it's interesting to talk about China's military reforms from 2012 onward. And really the kind of crux of China's military reforms, they've been trying to emphasize joint operations. And I'm sure most of you know what that means, but for the listeners, joint operation means in this context that the different services, uh, China's Navy, Army, Air Force, Rocket Brigade, all this stuff, they're all coming together under a single command and they're learning to work together. And what this means is if for some reason China was to go to war, this joint interoperability allows China to plan artillery fires in conjunction with um, rocket barrages, in conjunction with air assaults, air brigades, in conjunction with um, uh, sustainment and logistics <coughs> resupply from the army. So, so really emphasizing these uh, joint operations will really help China in the long run. But I kind of want to open the floor and see what you guys have kind of heard about China's military reforms and what you kind of um, took away from that. Um, the one things I've been seeing with Chinese military reforms, uh, excluding just putting in some new weaponry and put, making new ships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that's been interesting is, I guess, with their army, what they've been doing is they've been trying to get rid of their top-down command structure to give more powers to the NCOs in for like theater of operations and stuff, as well as they're trying to figure out ways to make more joint, to make more joint uh, exercise between the air force, the army, mm -hmm. the navy, etc. So there's more communication between the two in a coordinated strike. And I think a lot, I'm not going to lie, how I'd word it is I think a lot of the reforms are similar to what we see in general in Western armies, specifically in Europe and the United States, et cetera, which has been interesting. Well, yeah, just kind of going off that, part of, part of this joint operability necessitates like a, a reduction of politicalization within the, the PLA. And one example of this uh, reduction in politicalization came about, I think it was February 2016, where um, the four general departments that, that the, the People's Liberation Army had, they were dissolved and they were transformed into seven uh, military regions with like five theater commands. And so that kind of created um, a situation where the, the flag officers, right, the admirals and the generals, they were better able to reform their units under their purview um, without having too much interference from the CCP. Or at least the, the CMC, which is like the, the CCP is a way to kind of restrict their ability to act independently. And I'm not saying that politicalization has been totally reduced, but it's been minimized in a way which has allowed a lot of these reforms to take place and really have, it's really benefited China from a military perspective. 
Samaj is looking pensive. He's got something. It's a thought half form. Pass me. Pass me? Um, ben, have you, have you got a I just no, I want to see if Ben wanted to say something. Yeah. I'll just say two quick things. First, I don't know much about the reformers, but it sounds like it's they're just trying to become like a functioning military. Yes. Um, like they haven't been for a, ever. Um, yes. And then also the, you know, top-down bringing power to NCOs, I think, I mean, this obviously started before um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, sorry to bring it back to that, but, um, like, that's one of the major problems in uh, Ukraine, like, they're all, all, all of the Russian military is like conscripts, so they have a, a terrible NCO core. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny you mentioned that because we're just kind of seeing that effect now because Ukraine was basically the same thing as the Russian military before, like back in 2013, 2014. They relied on the top-down, like, uh, military structure. And after the Crimean invasion, as well as the Donetsk war started, the Ukrainians realized they need to change their tactics, they need to change everything. And they literally took their entire military structure, like, and just completely rebuilt it and now we're seeing how effective that is currently in this current war because Russia is still using ta tactics and methodology that is from the Soviet Union and Ukraine has learned so much more and is using those using those lessons right now. Well they, they were part of the Soviet Union so I'm just saying it's kind of weird like they, they would have the inside track on that. You know, well it's because this is the thing when it comes to any war or any conflicts the losing side learns more than the winning side. You can look at what happened with France after World War One. What, what's with the hand? Well, I, I don't know. I, I would fight back on that. I'm just looking at the United States after Vietnam. Like, we did a complete shift. Like, we did a complete shift in our training. We reformed everything. Not, it's not just like the uniforms and everything got reformed. It was how we used units. Um, we, we modified our weaponry. Like, the, the M16 is the clearest example, right? We fixed up that weapon system. Uh, fix up problems with propellant and, and ammunition. So I mean, we we learned a lot more about ourselves from living down more. And I think the VCOM. But that proves exactly. That kind of proves what I'm saying, though. Because I'm what I'm saying is usually the losing side learns more from what from the conflict. Oh, I'm they sorry. Lost. I just heard you. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. that's what yeah, I meant. I apologize. And even you can go back yeah. to. Sorry, I'm going to try to finish my topic quick. You can go back Sorry to about that you can look at China because even with what Ben just said, like they've been doing this before the recent war in Ukraine is then I should say the closest area you need to look into is the nineties because that was when China saw two things. One, the Iraq the Iraq war and how well the US managed the war mm -hmm. in Iraq. And this is nineteen ninety one. And then the Taiwan crisis of nineteen ninety six. And China saw those two instances and realized we need to change how our military works, functions, as well as the equipment that we are arranging. And Ben, did you want to say something? I was going to say exactly that. That like I think the people who learn the most are the third parties who are watching, um, and we're trying to like come to power. It's China and Iraq, in both like Iraq and Iran, and the Gulf War. Is that like they learned near peer conflicts, and I mean it took them a while to actually implement them until these reforms, but. They learn from that and how to fight the U.S., where I don't think the U.S. learned very many lessons from the Iraq war. Yeah, and I'll build it, uh, almost exactly off of that. Um, alongside all of these joint operability um, reforms that China's trying to implement, 
they're also doing a whole bunch of learning from the mistakes that great powers have been making in conflicts all around the world that they've been getting mistakenly or unmistakably involved in. Um, China has been taking a great focus to counterinsurgency operations in the last five years especially, but 10 years even. Um, they've been practicing counterinsurgency ops in the last five years in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Well, not in Taiwan, but in environments to right. simulate yeah. Taiwan <laughs> for a preparatory conflict um, in all of those environments. And they got to practice in Kazakhstan quite recently to shut down that conflict when Russia called some Chinese special ops teams in as a practice op. Um, when there were some Kazakh, they were just protesters, but the Kazakh government called them terrorists. Um, yeah, and then the, the Russians and the CSTO were called in to qual to qualm these terror terror attacks. Uh, and some of the CSTO members that were called in were Chinese special ops forces that were trying to practice and get better at counterinsurgency ops. Um, so China is learning a lot from the U.S.'s failed war on terror, and they're learning a lot from Russia's counterinsurgency operations in Ukraine right now, and they're learning a lot from uh, the U.S. mistakes abroad, and they're learning a lot from uh, just watching other world powers kind of suffer, just like <laughs> Ben said abroad, just like Ben just said. The, so, because everything you said, it ties in perfectly to a statement I took off in one of the PLA websites, one of the talking heads there. And he said the goal of the PLA's long-term modernization plan is, and now I'm quoting, is to create a force that is leaner, more mobile, better able to exploit information technologies, has greater high-tech firepower, and is better able to operate jointly with other services. Well, so I think that just hits succinctly what we've all been talking about. Well, yeah, that's exactly what the Marines been, force design. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. what we've been seeing for the past. Again, my view, since the 90s, what we've been seeing lately is China's been putting a lot more emphasis on its naval forces, its air forces, and its missile forces. And the reason for that is to make, specifically for the naval forces, to make them able to do multi-operations. It, it can involve stuff involving disaster relief, all the way to just patrols, even to, mar to maritime uh, expeditions or amphibious operations. Or just power production. You're seeing that from, from them. You can look at the missile forces. They're meant to be a deterrent force to make a, make another country second guess themselves if they're ever going to go against China, specifically the United States. Yeah. Samash, did you want to add something? That go. I mean, those operations go back actually to the 1940s. Um, two of the main projects that Mao wanted to do once he took over. Uh, one is a Chinese Air Force um, capable of um, strategic bombers, and two, missiles. Now granted, mm -hmm. missiles weren't technically really a thing in Fort Knight, they were unguided rockets, but the notions of- It was of, a China dream. Right, it was a China dream. <laughs> um, and then that was one of the reasons why they partnered with um, the Soviet Union. Um, and then they, they, after they learned their lessons in the Korean War, um, where believe it or not, Mao's son, um, fought in the Korean War, and he died. Um, and learning the lessons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they lost the somewhat half a million um, in Korea. But that was their first realization. It wasn't tech. It wasn't actually 
the in the nineties, their first realization of American ops and the importance of aerial supremacy was in the Korean War. But the thing that's um, interesting, no, well, this is mostly what I've read, I guess. From my unrestricted warfare book. <laughs> I still need to get more into that. But, <laughs> see, Ben, what happens is Samash is a massive library. It's like 500 books. And Brian will come in like a parasite and steal books off the top and just go. He let me read it. Yeah. Hold on just a second. But he, what he did not take was I have a book on literally China's military development since 1949. Mm -hmm. um, and so that one, he, I didn't show him that one. <laughs> I, I see why I'm holding out so you can win this argument. But, but this <laughs> emphasis on missiles, I mean, yes, Samaj, that's held true to like the present day, like the People's Liberation Army Navy, right? The plan. Right. They, they, the plan. Yeah, the plan. Right? <laughs> no, the plan. They, 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 they've just, they've continued to develop, you know, anti-ship missile. They, they've come yeah. out with a DF, what was it, 21D anti-ship mm -hmm. missile? But like, see, that came from, when it came with the missiles, um, that accelerated when Nixon was president. Um, and then Reagan became president with the national security directives, and one of the one of the demands by the Chinese essentially is that if you want us to be against the Soviets, you need to help us with our missile development, and that includes not even just um, with rocket propulsion, but precision guided um, technology, um, being able to produce small, medium range ballistic missiles. Uh, believe it or not, the was it the Chinese. The Chinese nuclear testing in 1968, 1969, uh, during the time they were having Soviet skirmishes, was actually was actually a ploy to the United States to get us to the talking table, rather than, as well as to scare the Soviets off. But it was a call by Mao to us. It was like, hey. Um, I'm ready to talk, but we didn't start really talking formally until '72. Um, but they knew. They had and they had inclinations that if the Soviets were to invade, the Soviet Union under, would utilize nuclear weapons as they would not be able to systematically um, combat literally the entire nation of China. It, um, I'm not gonna lie, that makes you think of one funny scenario in history involving China and Russia. Obviously, yeah, during the border skirmishes in 1968, 1969, I remember. I think it was the 70s. The Russians were. Debating starting like nuclear like starting a nuclear war against China because they mm -hmm. were fearing that China would be a problem, and they literally told the U.S. saying, "Hey, we are planning on doing this." And at the time, Nixon and Henry Kissinger were already thinking maybe we should do negotiations with China, etc. And when they when the Soviets told us, like, "All right, so this is our deal. Uh, if you do that, we will consider it a act against the United States, and we will do and we will do the same thing to you. Take your pick." And the Russians so always are like, "Great, you can't do anything." No, you can't. I mean, just look how when we're looking at China's getting very heavy, like the Taliban's Afghanistan right now. Um, China has had relations with the Taliban. Before they were known as the Taliban, we have the um, They were supplying them with weapons um, through Pakistan, but they kind of knew the guard well. Um, you had to get back to to get back against the Soviets and agreements with us, because we kind of we kind of knew that supply wise that yeah we can go through Pakistan, but we want to make sure they the Mujahideen is able to really garner um, their weapons. That's when China came into the, into play, but. China had a, a strategy of their own, um, especially when it came down to countering uh, Soviet expansion. I mean, you had Maoism, and then you had 
But anyway, looking at where China is now with their missiles and the first island chain, the second island chain, um, what their agenda is, my point is that they can observe all they want, make all of these structural changes and modernizations, but there's a difference between being a third-party observer and actually getting the fighting experience. That's the thing. I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, they haven't been at war. To Ben's point, I think, they haven't been at war since 1970. Was that actually a war? Or was that a war skirmish with Vietnam? They they did a full-scale invasion. They got about, like, 10 miles across the Vietnamese border, got their asses kicked. Their logistics train literally up in flames. And they had to retreat. They literally learned our lesson during the Vietnam War. And so this is the thing. Like, all these reforms, they sound good on paper. I'm sure there's been some good coming to it. But... China won't know if those reforms were successful until they actually go to war against, uh, not not a near peer, right, but like maybe like a middle-sized power. Mm-hmm. They won't know. It's, well, it's kind of the point where Russia's at with Ukraine. Yeah, mm-hmm. point, well, yeah that's, that's, the, the point. that's the thing. This is the thing I try to tell people as much as possible. People will say, oh, Russia's the evil big bad government. Now we've seen that. Not so much. And they say the same thing trying to say, oh, respect. And in my view, this is the thing I tell people all the time. There is never fully such a thing as a boogeyman. The reason I say that is because Yeah. the reason I say that though is because we can look at what other nations' capabilities are or what we see on paper for what they want to do and we can say, Oh my god, that's so that's horrible. We need to do something about it. But the thing is, how much of that is truly being implemented and how much of that how much of their dreams, aspirations, etc. are fully being realized and are actually working for it. And we've already seen it with Russia. Before the Russian Ukrainian war People were believing that Russia was going to take over Ukraine in a couple of days, and they believed the Russian military was so modernized, as well as has changed their strategies, etc., since the Georgian War in 2008, that they were a completely different force. And now we're starting to realize that, no, they have not changed at all. They still do the same tactics, the same stuff. The difference is they just have new technology that some of them don't even know how to use. And that's the thing you can even look in China's own cases. They have... The plan they want to do, they have these new modernizations, but the question is, how much of that would really go well in an actual conflict situation? Aubrey, you got something? Yeah, I just want to say, like, uh, America can reach back uh, to highly experienced military veterans in any event of a war. We, I know it, it sounds very much hooray, hooray America, but... but I just I think that that's the point. China doesn't have this pool of veterans that they can reach back into, still in service, by the way, mm-hmm. that they can pull and they can put on the front line of a war. They don't have these experienced NCOs or these these experienced uh, other officers, obviously, that are able to get into a fight and know exactly what's going to happen. And it just goes back to Wainwright's point that you know it sounds all good on paper. But when you're actually implementing it and, and practicing it, what is it really going to look like? Yeah, to, to get good at something, you, you have to be under intense pain to learn how to correct yourself, or you need to do it a bunch of times. Repetition of pain. And Russia's going through both right now in Ukraine, and they, I think they'll come out better for it militarily. They'll, they'll know, like I said in another podcast, they'll know what to do with the resources they have now, how to reform what, they, um, what didn't work for them. Um, and maybe China will have to do the same thing in the future. Who knows? Maybe against Taiwan, maybe against some other country. We'll just have to see. What were you going to say, Ben? I was going to say, even still with Russia, Russia's gone through, since 
the you know Russia was created though you know after the fall of the Soviet Union gone through two huge modernization campaigns and you know a dozen wars or half of something mm-hmm. and they still have not learned their lessons like this is this is Grozny like Ukraine they, they didn't learn anything like so even combat experience like if you're not willing to like actually learn and make effective changes then it doesn't matter and China without any combat experience and you know one kind of look through is not it's not going to be enough to actually create an effective army a military yeah it's well said. I don't like it. Well, I mean, I, I think we've gotten through everything very well. I mean, I, I think it's, we should wrap it up. Yeah. Um, then, as I think it was Sun Yat-sen, or Mao, I think it was Sun Yat-sen that said it, that all great nations were born through fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at where we are now with Ukraine, talking about China, um, Mexico, etc. Um, these are all very, very important geopolitical hotspots that we have to seriously really understand um, in a way that's not biased to any type of political leniency, but to look at it, how these situations are to be looked at so that productive conversations can lead to productive policies um, that can produce logical outcomes that we can work with uh, for the sake of national security. Uh, we talked about a lot today. Um, God knows I'm tired. <laughs> um, so with that, uh, we will be ending the podcast here. Uh, until next time, much peace and much love.